Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Taiko Alhambra. Thank you for listening. If this is your first episode, we're happy to have you here, and please know you are welcome regardless of your race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales Podcast stands in solidarity with you all. Transcripts of the show are available. The link is in the show notes. If you enjoy the show and want to contribute to its success so that it continue being the podcasting juggernaut with a level of success that the McElroys can only dream of, please feel free to support me on Patreon. Every dollar goes back into the show and contributes to reader payments, equipment upgrades, hosting fees, and cleaning and upkeep of the hippopotamus pen we have on the third floor of the mansion that was paid for exclusively from the Patreon. Thank you so much to David Ricker, Natasha Nowicki, and Melissa Boudreaux for your support. Auditions for the full cast reading of A Christmas Carol are still open. All roles are available and anyone of any level of experience is welcome. This is your chance to be on the show, which I know everyone has always dreamed of. Okay, on with the story. Sothogua by Michael Shea is copyright 2013 by Michael Shea, all rights reserved, used by permission of the estate of Michael Shea. An elderly woman named Maureen, neatly dressed and manicured, sat on a bus stop bench in San Francisco. She was watching the leisurely approach of an old shopping cart vagabond up the sidewalk. Maureen believed in being courteous to everyone, but the vagabond woman strongly irritated her, perhaps because Maureen had put her dear little buddy to sleep not so long ago. And the gaunt, sunburned, wild-haired tramp was pushing, along with other things in her cart, a box with a tiny, sick-looking little dog in it a whippet. Maureen and her friends in her church discussion group had been talking about speaking out lately, about not being so courteous when something hurtful was done, about protesting in the name of decency. I'm sorry, said Maureen, a little loud and unsteady at the newness of this, but I just think it's disgraceful. Whatever you've chosen to degrade yourself, I think it's terrible to subject that poor little animal to this existence. It's unforgivable. The old cart-pushing dame paused. She had a long, stark, tendony frame. In her baggy jeans and denim jacket, she was deep-seamed old, but one of those bionic oldsters, tight and sound as a banty rooster. Hey, she said, we've spent his whole life walking around this city. You think because he's dying he doesn't want to get around anymore? I'm his chauffeur. But you should put him to sleep. Look how decrepit he is. He's going to sleep. You think I want to rush him along, who's been my friend his whole 17 years? You gotta excuse me, I'm taking us home for a bath right now. You have a home? What am I, wearing a label? You see me dressed for walking? You think I'm homeless? And on she went, her cart rattling softly. Maxie was her name. Her hair was white, but luxuriant still. She wore its shag like a plumed battle cask hooding her brow, head, and neck. It tendrilled like tree roots on her gaunt, denim shoulders. Her ancient whippet, though, Ramsey's, was aged beyond all vigor. She bent her face to him as she pushed, and Ramsey's, a living skeleton, raised in pulsed dabs his tiny muzzle towards her, sniffed, too, now and again, the early autumn air. In front of the cart was a kitchen box of goods and utensils, and next to it the bedding and clothes box. Last night, they had shared their sleeping bag among the trees below the Legion of Honor, had a twig fire in her fire can, invisible from twenty feet away, had soup and tea for them both, and then some blazing stars to look at above the Golden Gate. Ramses had gone to sleep. 
Maxie had reread and relished Mitchell Smith's Due North by her tiny reading light. Here they were, back at their building. Maxie's home, Butler Street County Housing, was sited in the hills above the panhandle. The neighborhood, at least a nice one. The building had its own little parking lot and well-kept plantings all around. She had a niche in these where she always tucked her cart. She took the knapsack of her and Ramsey's dirty laundry, put her two days' dirty dishes and cooking pan into its side pockets, and slipped it on. Had already slipped on the child carrier pouch frontwards and tenderly hoisted Ramsey's, holstering him against her chest. Her apartment was on the third floor, and there was a lot of hallway life on the third floor. Hang around kids and young men with drugs to sell each other, an attitude to maintain in front of each other. Everybody poor and desperate enough to make violence always an uneasy possibility. Inside the entry, she turned hard right for the stairs. The tough element always claimed the elevators. The stairs were faster anyway, and better exercise. She emerged in the hall of her wing and found her local, mainly Hispanic crew on duty. Their lead rapster in a sideways-billed cap was a guy she thought of as Dog. That's what he called Maxie because of her always carrying Ramses and what he called her now. Hey, Dog! Dog's back! What's it gonna be? You need to pay your police services fee. Now it's 20 a week. Dog, why don't you pay up? You gotta pay the VIG, Dog. You gotta pay the VIG. This was the way it was supposed to go. Maxie would reply, I'm not paying anything, get out of my way, and she would say this, but not try to get past them. Then Dog would push his bullying little riff again, and then Maxie would refuse again, all while his audience just sort of idly enjoyed the show of Dog putting Maxie through her paces, and then, at last, they'd let her pass. But this afternoon, Maxie was wrung out. That crazy woman had ticked her off, reminded her that truly Ramsey's was near death. Scared, weary, and pissed, she snapped, "'Leave me alone!' Get your lazy candy ass out of my way, you moron. Vig is interest on a loan. You're trying to extort protection from me, you ignorant asshole. That stopped Mr. Dog hard for a moment. Took him like a punch. Her steely contempt where he'd thought himself comfortably feared. If Dog hadn't had his whole crew with him, if it had been just him and another one he particularly hung with, a guy they called Carne who had sick dreamy eyes, then he would have hit her, certainly cracked her jaw or some part of her body. As it was, he shoved her, the heels of his hands to her shoulders, and she stumbled backwards, fighting to keep her feet under her, and Ramsey's safe in his carrier. Back she came, marched past them to her doorway, got inside. As she ran the tub full, Maxie faced it. A line had been crossed. They'd laid hands on her, and it might come readier next time. These kids had nothing, possessed not even the barest information about their world. They would cling to whatever sad debris life brought their way, would seize and cultivate any contest that got started in their hallway world. It was on the chilly side in the bathroom. She put Ramsey's in the electric blanket while she bathed and washed her hair. Bathed him next while their tomato soup with cheese melted in was cooling, Ramsey's vitamins mixed in with his, Maxie's and hers. After they ate, there were all the utensils to be scoured and repacked in the pockets of her knapsack, she cleaned and flossed her teeth, and then hung Ramsey's in a clean carrier on her chest and took up the knapsack of wash. Time to check out the laundry room. She cracked her door open. The corridor was empty. She made quick time to the stairwell and slipped inside it, stood listening. Ten flights of metal stairs and scarred pipe railing above her, a zigzag of six flights below her. 
from the laundry room door would well the echoes of any activity. Nothing. She'd always listened before descending. People partied down there, dealt, OD'd occasionally, and Maxie always stood ready to turn on a dime and truck on out to the laundromat in the neighborhood. More expensive, but hassle-free. She started down quietly, got down four of the six flights, the laundry room and the maze of storage lockers that surrounded it sounding perfectly empty, and then there came one very soft little resonance of metal. So minor a sound, like the slightest tap against the hollowness of one of the big washers or dryers down there. Listening. Listening. She heard nothing more. It could have been the stir of someone... hiding down there. She peered into Ramsey's face, checking as she'd done through the years for his reading of a risky vicinity. He looked up at her, feebly alert but inscrutable. Ah, how her little sidekick's life had waned. A flare of anger started Maxie down again. She was sick of dodging around this gloomy, risky place. But old persons? Well, the whole world was bigger and scarier for them all. If she was tired of ducking and maneuvering in the world's brutal bigness, Maxie should just give up, right? The fact was, she would save two bucks using these machines. That was an extra cocktail at Pete's tonight. So... Was she getting so chicken shit that she didn't dare go down there and win herself a bit of luxury? The stairwell door hung open, and the laundry room beyond it was deserted. She walked down both aisles to be sure and checked the bank of dryers. The long, defunct machine back in the corner still stood with its door open, though the band of yellow plastic tape across it had been broken. She approached it down the damp concrete aisle, where suds lay on the floor by the bank of washers opposite. A faint, ragged noise rose from the pouch. Ramsey's was growling a warning, and there was something big inside the dryer's black drum. A person? A woman? Yes, a little Latin woman, curled up as if asleep. Was she asleep? And as Maxie leaned her head inside, Ramsey's little growl grew echosome. Asleep. She breathed softly the little brown moon of her face childish and candid, seeming to dream. On drugs? Drunk? Whatever. Leave her be. You stick tight to your own business in this place. She backed quietly from the dryer, and something squishy cracked under the heel of her Nike. She turned round. One of the big washers behind her had shut down mid-cycle, had a load of unmoving suds in it, while the door of the one beside it hung open, thick suds dripping from the door's glass eye. She'd trod in the mess of foam it had shed on the floor. There was her shoe print in the suds, and something small and dark crushed in its midst. A slug? It always smelled so earthy down here, and right now more than ever. The dense dirt the whole building was rooted in, you could feel it right outside these concrete walls. She went into the other aisle, got all their wash into one load, and set it going. She put Ramses down on the floor and was folding his pouch into a little mat for him when he got up and tottered off. Maxie smiled. Sometimes the earthen aura down here persuaded the old Ramses that he was outside where he could take a dump. Let him. It would be small and dry and easily scooped. She watched his trembly progress. Damn that self-righteous old bitch. But it was true. Her poor friend was on his way out. Maxie had gotten in for Jack in those last two years Jack was dying. 
Jack had named him for his habit of ramming blindly into things as an impetuous pup. Fifteen years dead, the dear man. How she missed him still. And now old Ramsey's here. The last piece of life they'd shared was passing out of the world. Maxie opened the guns of August and fell right into it, re-entered that vast machine of long-ago armies locked in stasis, locked in butchery. She would allow herself an extra cigarette today, six, not five. Her regimen ironed fast these last ten years. Her six smoke days were an indulgence earned by its rarity. She lit one up and gorged on the satiny entrails of a Marlboro's smoke as she read. Going to dry her load, she saw Ramses down at the end of the aisle, sitting before the little Latina's odd dormitory, his gaze alternating between it and the lush sud still undecayed on the floor. When Maxie started her own dryer, it roused no stir from the sleeper. How strange to have a little dreaming neighbor like this. What kind of life would the girl step back into when she woke? What dangers, disorders, unmet needs? How many years did she have left? Far more than Maxie had, no doubt. Maureen had one of those decent-sized little backyards some houses have out in the avenues, and she and Muffin were out in it watering their flower beds. The dog, two yards over, King, that dreadful big mastiff of Wyatt and Eve's, was barking again. His relentless barking had long ago worn a blister on Maureen's patience, and then the blister had become more like a callus, though sometimes it was more like a blister again. Meanwhile, little Muffin, also vocal, was yipping incessantly at the hose. Maureen thumbed the water into a fan and moistened the trilliums, finding Muffy's puppy relentlessness a little trying after all. Maureen had been younger when she'd broken in her beloved buddy, but if you loved small dogs, you had to handle that hyperness that goes with them, especially at first. No one could replace Buddy, of course. The grief for Buddy, whom she'd had to put to sleep, came to her again as Maureen had long ago accepted it would. She gazed down upon Muffin, trying to see in him the dear companion he would become in future years, and as she was musing in this way, the hose she held gave a kind of lurch in her inattentive grip, twitched sideways, and sent a stronger stream down on Muffin, drenching his head in mid-bark. The dog shook himself and then began to lick his chops, while Maureen looked closer at what seemed to be a thicker kind of water now coming out of her garden hose. It felt slicker to her thumb and fingers, and it splattered rather than splashed on the soil. And against the background of the soil, into which it quickly soaked, it was hard to tell, but wasn't there, like, little black clots in the water? They soaked in too fast, to be sure. Then the water ran normal again. Some bit of debris in the line. I don't drink that much, Maxie, Vera said, stabbing the bar with her forefinger, and I saw what I saw. You enjoying that drink? Vera had a sharp nose for a black lady and little tufted, alarmed-looking eyebrows that made her eyes seem on the brink of outrage. I am enjoying it, and I am listening. What number is that? Referring to the cigarette, Maxie was unlimbering. Two. I get six today. I might smoke two in a row sitting on this very stool. Maxie waved another round from Pete. She had Ramsey's in the sling. Would have wanted to bring in his box and put it on the stool next to hers, but Pete drew the line. Dog can come in, but not in his bed, for Christ's sake. I already let you pack your goddamn lady cart out back, Maxie. This is a bar. Jack would have said the same. Jack loved Ramsey's. 
This is a bar, all right, put in Vera, but this is a neighborhood bar. It celebrates neighborhood diversity, including the wackadoo practices of the local seniors. Elbowing Maxie's ribs here. They had been neighbors for seven years, and then Vera had protested against the decline of the Butler Street housing. She had agitated and done the red tape till she was relodged in a better building, and now that building was already as bad as Butler, if not worse. So what do you think, girl, about what I saw? Look at me. Do you think I'm drunk? No. Well, this is exactly how I was last night crossing the panhandle. So you going to just dismiss what I told you? Crossing the panhandle at about 2 a.m., Vera had seen a man lying on a bench under one of the pathway lamps. He was passed out, it seemed, as she approached, still a block away, but then the man suddenly appeared to be struck by seizure. His legs started violently kicking out as he lay there. Vera hurried forward, the path curving and some trees blocking her view for several long moments as she limpingly picked up speed, striding as fast as her bad left hip would let her. When she came back into view just yards from the bench, the man lay quiet again, totally still, his eyelids shut, his face slack, his left arm hanging off the bench, and one of the legs of his trousers, flat and empty on the slats of the bench. "'I like to have wet myself,' were Vera's words. She had seen both legs kicking in the dim lamplight. And now, this empty fabric tube. And just then, she heard a scraping as of rough skin rustling through undergrowth. She caught a blur of movement off in the grass to her right. And it reached some bushes, and right where it left the grass and pushed in between them, I saw something big and thick worm itself across with, like, pebbly skin. Vera pursued, too astonished to do otherwise, and the grass, uncut for some time, snagged her jerky gait. There was a curious tearing sound and then a vigorous receding slither. She groped into the bushes and threaded her way into the clear again. Between the trees along the panhandle's border, she glimpsed, across Fell Street, something big, moving low to the ground, reaching the far curb just ahead of an oncoming truck and diving into the darkness beneath a parked van. And Vera, in the weeds near where she stood, found a shoe, its laces still tied, but the whole shoe ruptured, a bouquet of tatters attached to a sole. Dazed, unwillingly, she returned to the bench. There was no sign of the man. In a cluster of bushes not too distant, she heard a muffled thrashing. I thought it over, but then I headed home. No way was I messing around in them bushes. Vera glared at Maxie, awaiting her response. Well, said Maxie, I can only say that's strange. I have to add that last night was obviously one of those occasional nights when you get a little drunker than you think you are. Vera looked at her gloomily. She didn't seem to want to challenge this, but didn't seem able to believe it either. Maxie cruised down the pleasant asphalted lanes of Golden Gate Park, trending down seawards. The sun, while still an hour high, sank into a rising layer of mist and dimmed to a Martian wafer, brick red. A sharp wind came up and started driving the mist inland through the park, draping streamers of fog through the towering cypresses and tangling it in the eucalypti's blown cascades of black-gray foliage. Shreds of mist licked her face, and she tucked Ramsey's more warmly in his box. The weather shifts stirred her. In the white-out of driving mist, 
The great trees rippled like coral reefs in a streaming sea of air. Wind always excited Maxie, though it bit her harder in her lean old age. Ramsey seemed stirred too, looked livelier up at her from his thick swaddling, relishing the silver rush of the air. Put you to sleep, she scoffed. <laughs> Crazy bitch, isn't this an amazing evening? She crossed the great highway and walked along the seaside promenade, pushing their cart's rattling prow into the wind. A surprisingly thick foam churned on the surf, the caked yellow froth of hard-lashed seas. Copious fragments of it came tumbling and winging across the broad beach. They climbed the embankment to fly in chunks and tatters across the promenade, scud out into the great highway, and plaster the passing traffic here and there with rags of dirty bubbles. The cold spray licking Maxie's cheekbones felt dense and glutinous, and through all this wind and the sharp sea smell, there was a haunting swamp scent, a fetter that belonged to dark murk and deep jungle, not at all to wind-blown coasts. Yet, here it was, eddying inside the cowl of Maxie's parka, probing her nostrils with the smell of putrefaction. She trudged up past the cliff house, past the guano-bleached crags just offshore in the surf's crash. Even this high above the sea, the dirty blizzard still blew past her, crossing the pavements. Tonight she'd go into those trees again, up beyond the pits of the old Sutro baths. Soon it was falling dark, but by that time they were snug in the lee of two close-growing trees, lying back half-propped on a mattress of dry needles and fern fronds, she and Ramses snug in their waterproof, fiber-filled mountain bag. Plenty of hot-burning cypress twigs lay broken and stockpiled, while the tiny trail stove housed a hot little blaze at their side and heated her cocoa in an enameled tin cup. They lay back, looking from the gaps in the trees down on the narrowing waters of the Golden Gate, the bridge ankle-deep in the steel-gray sea. The vista grew dimmer as the headlights rivering atop the bridge grew brighter, Beyond the bridge, mist filled the bay and muted the glints of the city lights along its eastern shore. Maxie lit her fourth cigarette of the day, two more still to come, and congratulated herself, not for the first time, on her long-ago inspiration to take to the streets, to spend two-thirds of her days and nights outdoors. How much better the night sky was than any ceiling, and how much better to be moving around, where in the world was there a more beautiful city than San Francisco? Why lie in any box in the time you've got left, eh, old girl? Her shopping cart had been an inspired idea, a declaration of poverty, a protection against thieves. She'd found the perfect way to go abroad in the world. She took a deep drag and streamed it up towards the first shyly appearing stars. Sipped her cocoa. It would be sweet to have Jack beside her now. They could describe to each other how grand and impossible the bridge looked bestriding the sea. I miss you, my love, she said quietly. It always hurt her to say it aloud, and always had a sweetness too, as if Jack just might hear it. Within the murmur of the wind in the trees, within that restless commotion, she felt wrapped in the conversation, the hum of the forest's green life. Was that a trickling sound she heard? There was a moon well up in the misty night, and when Maxie peered into the trees for the sound's source, her eye caught a glinting something in the ferns a few yards to her left. A little seepage from the loam? Maybe 
maybe something a little more profuse than seepage. She saw a silvery little braid of movement there. It was months since any rain. She finished her cocoa and got out her second-to-last smog, snapped it alight and blew the satin smoke from her nostrils. The sound of the night had changed around her. The hillside seemed restive in a new way, not just with the wind's passage, but stirred by little secretive movements everywhere. A host of small, half-hidden lives, all working in the earth and in the leaf mold and among the roots of the trees. The roots right under her. She consumed the cigarette, cupping the coal between drags so the wind wouldn't accelerate its burndown, and by the time she'd finished it, had decided that, when she'd gathered ferns and needles for her mattress, there had been no seepage over there, where now she saw one. She weighed her comfort against her curiosity. In the end, that restlessness in the earth goaded her to action. She extracted herself carefully from the bag, resettling it closely around Ramsey's, stepped into her jeans and her Nikes. Only a glow of embers came from the square mouth of her tin-can stove. She stepped across springy earth into deepening shadow. Here was a shallow cleft in the sloping soil, and a leakage, not of water, but of a loose, viscous fluid, bubbly with strong, curd-like bubbles that put her in mind somehow of the suds dripping from that open washer door this afternoon. You ought to watch out for that stuff. The voice was calm, but so unexpectedly nearby that Maxie had a neural meltdown. You son of a bitch! Don't you have the manners to greet someone? What are you doing sneaking up to me? I've been standing here ten minutes. I thought you saw me. But there was a sour humor in this old man's eyes that confessed he'd enjoyed making her jump. He was small and lean, in dark sweatshirt and jeans, helmeted in a black wool cap with a tiny brim and ear flaps, his face all gaunt in there. But he had a major handlebar mustache that was remarkably thick for a man this old. The stash made Maxie think of a ragged white alley cat draped over a fence. So why are you standing here? There's plenty of room on this hill. We want our goddamn privacy. You shouldn't be lying here, that's what I'm telling you. You gotta watch out for this stuff, for anything that comes from the water table. For anything that comes from the water table? You speak English, don't you? Better than you. This made the handlebar man mad. Maybe so, but you don't know shit. Just do yourself and everyone else a favor and don't step in it. That's not too complicated for you. And he walked off into the trees, pretty quiet and stuck in his movements too and soon gone from sight and hearing. Maxie crouched down over the seepage, stirred around in it a little with a twig. It was clotted with little shadows in the clots. She'd grown up in the central valley. Frog spawn, she said, or toad spawn up on these moist hillsides, that's all it was. Stashman was an urban whack, freaked out by unfamiliar nature. She sighed and went back to her sleeping bag. Snuggling down and cradling Ramsey, she told him, God, That guy seemed almost sane at first, didn't he? But deeper in the night, Ramsey's movement woke her. He had climbed her shoulder and stayed there with his muzzle aimed at the seepage, and remained so after she had fallen back into sleep. Maureen had fallen asleep in her barca lounger, snug in quilts with the clicker at hand, and Muffin curled on her lap. It was Muffin sleeping there that had put Maureen under, and now it was his gentle movements in her lap that awakened her. 
She had a vague sensation of small, light forms dispersing across her thighs. Her wakening was hazy and slow, for she'd had one of her nice pills before she and Muffin settled down. She raised her head, so comfy and heavy. Yes, there he was in her lap, his adorable little muzzle thrust up inquiringly towards Maureen's face, and his little fawn-colored flanks so fluffy, but... Maureen hoisted herself a little higher. Muffin blinked calmly back at her. But Muffin had... no legs. No legs at all. Muffin was only his head, his fat, fluffy little torso, and his tail. He looked perfectly sleek, like he'd never had legs. Maureen was utterly, albeit groggily, astonished. And just then, she felt a delicate movement across the slipper on her right foot. The shock of it gave her the hydraulic lift to sit all the way up. A slender little jointed shape jackknifed off her slipper and vanished. Scooping up Muffin, Maureen surged to her feet in astonished terror. Here was her dog, as smooth as a little guinea pig, but without even a guinea pig's tiny legs. He was just a plump, furry tube. His tail wagged in response to Maureen's hands, but lackadaisically. His jaws were slightly parted, and he seemed very lightly to pant. Maureen set him on the couch, rushed, whimpering softly to the phone, and punched out her vet's number from memory. Soon she was in a frantic altercation with the vet's answering service. Maureen crying banshee-like that an ambulance must come for Muffin and herself, and that Dr. Groner had to come in to meet them at the pet hospital at once. Maureen encountered, with a suede glove of courtesy, an iron fist of refusal, and then was galvanized to discover in her pacings that Muffin had disappeared from his nest of cushions. But how could the poor dog move? In a panic, she dropped the phone and searched under the sofa. Down the hall behind her came the little clap of the back door pet door. It was only Tasha, Maureen's cranky old portly little Persian, waddling dourly toward her. Still in shock, Maureen responded by rote, went to the kitchen to be sure Tasha's dish was full. The kitchen was dark, but a slant of light from the Barca lounger lamp showed the shadow of food in the dish. Wasting no energy on greeting, Tasha padded a beeline to her supper. Trembling with determination, Maureen took up the phone again. If it had to be 911, so be it. A thump and a slithery scrabbling and the rattle of spilt kibble brought her head round. Tasha lay half in shadow, thrashing mightily, and what looked like long tapery fish with froggy skin, three of them, were eating her legs. Three of her legs as the cat kicked and thrashed them in the air and clawed at them with her one free paw, but the fish, muscular, powerful, swallowed her legs into their froggy tubes with great gulps, lurching closer to her torso. Four of them now, for Tasha's tail was also taken by yet another of the little monsters that lurched suddenly from the darkness. Oh dear God in heaven, what was happening? A commotion rose from the back of the couch and she whirled. Around from the back and over the top poured another one of those toad-skinned fish, much bigger than the other four. Maureen screamed and leapt backwards, stumbled and fell back into her barco lounger, and saw that atop this bigger monster's toad-like skull, there were two little tufted peaks, and instantly recognized those dear little saliences. They were the tips of Muffin's ears. But already, 
they were no longer like ears. They were melting, sinking to a tarry substance which seemed to weave itself into the toadskin hemisphere, melting to a dark resin that was already merging with the monster's amphibious skin. This had been Muffin, this hideous fish. It launched itself and the creature, big as a cat itself, seemed to have only Tasha in its sights. It launched to the floor and thrashed across it, pushing itself along by, Maureen saw them now, the thrusts of four little legs that looked almost like fins with little clawed feet. A strange calm fell upon Maureen. All of this was so impossible that it was fascinating. Maureen's religion had a dimension of true feeling in her heart. The world's dazzling multiplicity often moved her deeply with reverence and awe, and often she inwardly exclaimed, Behold the wonders of God's creation, for how can man conceive any end to their variety? For look, the lesser fish had fled to the shadows already, and now Tasha had only one leg and no tail. Gamely, Tasha hoisted her head to encounter the big toad fish's advance, its glossy, parabolic jaws gaping wider, wider, as it thrashed its way across the floor and leapt and engulfed Tasha right up to her remaining leg. Then it reared up its toad-like gullet and bolted Tasha's leg down, too. Maureen watched in awe. And terror, too, of course, but encompassing the fear was a bemused sense of privilege for being honored with a revelation. She was being shown a miracle. She was not the futile, undistinguished woman she had, unknown to herself, feared that she was. She was being shown a miracle, and it filled her with gratitude. Or perhaps this terror had simply made her insane. But she did not feel insane. She felt tingly. Her thumb itched, and from it a kind of heat seemed to flow out and into all the rest of her body. She lay back, watching Tasha's devourer calmly. The creature seemed slightly to swell, to change, its tail a bit shorter, its legs a bit bigger and more clearly jointed. It waddled its way down the hall out of her view. There was a clatter of the pet door, and Maureen felt herself alone in the house. Her body was quite comfortable, really, and this was just exactly what she should be doing. After such a revelation, she should be lying here, comfortably, meditating upon the wonder of it, and raising hosannas in her heart to a beneficent God capable of such wonders, and loving her enough to share them with her. At sunrise, Maxie rose and broke camp, went up slope to the cluster of trees where she'd hidden her cart, and then down to the coffee shop just above the cliff house. Here they accepted her with Ramses in his sling. She had a couple eggs and a cup of coffee, went to the restroom. One thing about walking around all day was, you were regular as clockwork. She had a second cup, having laid out her money with a dollar tip, as always, and savored it as she looked from the window. Watch the waves rolling in below the bare foundations of the vanished Sutro baths. There was still a lot of foam on the waters. It drew her attention. No gale now to froth it up, but big yellowish mats and ridges of this lather mantled the waves. 
and still on this morning's milder breeze it blew ashore, even way up here. Little rags of it tufted the dead water of the two square tarns that had been the baths. Outside, she got Ramses into his box bed and rolled him on down to the paths that networked the site. When she was closer to the pools, she saw that the froth lay unmelting. Odd. Come to that, it was odd that there was so much water in those pits. What was the norm for October after months without rain? She pushed to the path beyond the site and out away around the shoulders of the bluffs. The foam lay in a shore-hugging band, not that wide really, and seeming to narrow as it wrapped around the headland towards the Golden Gate, like a great decorative scarf flung around the cliff's base. It's me, over here. Again, calmly spoken, but this time the handlebar man stood fifteen feet upslope from her. That's much better, Maxie said. I hate being snuck up on. So you talk about the water table? You know about water in general? Like all that foam down there? There's no wind to whip it up. The ocean's part of the water table. You don't think it honeycombs the whole damn peninsula here? He let a silence follow. Okay, she said. So? I'm not good at explaining. I have to show you. You'll have to park the car and bag the dog. You been spying on me? How do you know I carry him in a sling? Hey, I know every walker in this city. I get around. Keep my eyes open. You want to believe? You want to bury your head? In the sand? In the sand. Lead on. I've got a knife. True. And I've got a gun. Untrue. And I know how to use them both. Untrue. Neither one. He led them back up into the trees. She parked her cart under cover, slung Ramses on her chest. Ramses looked alert and eager, as if today an added amperage coursed through him. The little whippet had always been her warning system, and he was telling her to follow this man. I'm Maxie. I'm Leon. He didn't look back at her, leading them up slope through the trees, rounding the shoulder of the headland. As they advanced northeasterly, the northern pylon of the Golden Gate just peeked into view until the woods got thicker and the ground got steeper and she had to give all her attention to the trail. Petrov's route, scarcely a proper path itself, crossed many a clearer path descending steeply to the beach below. This crooked deer trail moved only gradually down the bluffs as it arced around them. Now the bluff got quite steep and the hillside infolded deeply, and within this seam a sharper, deeper gully lay. It was bare dirt, running perhaps a hundred yards down the bluff, heavily overgrown along its crests to either side, but in its depth just bare rock and the reddish clay of the cliffside's flesh. Steep here, said Leon quietly, stopping, turning to her. You up to it? We gotta go down to that outcrop by the lower angle. See it? I'm up to it, Maxie snapped. Still, it was steep, and the earth had to be worked with the heel to furnish footholds and the shrubs used for steadying handholds. Ramsey stirred in his pouch, and his muzzle probed the cold blue morning air. The rim shelved a little. Petrov called a halt, and they looked down into the gully. A damp breath welled from it. He pointed toward its apex upslope of them. Look at there. See the stream creeping out of this thing? The earth seemed moister around a seam in the clay up there, and yes, she could now see that a thin sheen threaded its way all the way down along the gully's floor and into the shrubbery below it. I don't see any flow, 
Look at that slickness. It's transparent, but it's like thick, right? Okay, uh, there's some moisture, I guess. So what? This gully right here is where all that foam along the beach is coming from. Hey, Leon, you gotta be kidding. No, since you don't know shit, of course you'd say that. Hey, I don't like your mouth. I don't like your mustache, either. Looks like the whiskers on a walrus's ass. You seen the whiskers on a walrus's ass? A white walrus's ass. Okay, okay. Why should you trust me? I'll tell you what. Come back here just before dark tonight, get into some cover and stay hidden, and watch this ravine. You won't watch long before you see exactly what I'm talking about. And that is the end of part one of Sithagua by Michael Shea. Thank you so much for listening. Please feel free to kick into the Patreon and audition for A Christmas Carol. I'm very excited about the project and I'm looking forward to how it all turns out. Please go and get vaccinated if you haven't, get your booster shot, and continue to wear a mask if you have. Punch a racist in the face, and always remember that the most important step a person can take is always the next one. Have a good week.